This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thanks for joining us. I'm Charles Rowe. You can listen to new podcasts into England's past every Thursday. Just tap or click subscribe to hear them wherever you are. Now, a new exhibition at Stonehenge called Circles of Stone is revealing the surprising parallels between the monuments that were built in the Neolithic in Britain and those created in Japan during the same period. Joining us now to discuss the exhibition and to explain the prehistoric links between those two countries are our two guests for today. Uh, Hi, I'm Melanie Cousins and I'm the interpretation manager for Stonehenge. So in my role, I'm responsible for all of the ways that we interpret the history of Stonehenge and the ways that we share the stories of the stones with our visitors. I also manage the changing exhibitions at the Visitor Centre, which is what we're here to talk about today. And our second guest. Hello. I'm Simon Kainer. I'm the executive director of the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, and I'm the director of the Centre for Japanese Studies at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. And you are a doctor, so we should probably say that as well. And you're also, I believe, eight hours ahead of Melanie and myself. I am indeed. I'm sitting in Kyoto at the moment, the old capital of Japan. I've been here for the last couple of weeks and have been able to visit some of the sites that we're going to be borrowing from for the exhibition. Let's start off with you then, Simon. Before we talk about some of the objects that are featured in this exhibition at Stonehenge, I think we need to explain the similarities between Stonehenge and Japan. And I understand that Japan, where you are, also has some stone circles. So could you describe where they are, what they look like, and how they were made? Yes, of course. So Japan does have a number of prehistoric stone circles. They're mainly in the northern part of the main island um, of Honshu, in the area called Tohoku, or the northeast of Japan, and in the island of Hokkaido, which is the northernmost island of the archipelago. The Japanese stone circles, uh, there are some really intriguing similarities, but the most obvious difference is that the Japanese stone circles aren't megalithic in nature, like Stonehenge. So we don't have huge standing stones, but we do have very large numbers of stones which were brought together uh, during later prehistoric times and arranged in circular patterns, making large stone monuments that cover an area that isn't dissimilar to Stonehenge, I suppose. But when you go and see them today, What you see are clusters of stones that vary in size from, I suppose, a bag of sugar to, I don't know, something that looks about the size of a fireplace, I suppose, in an English house. They're about that size, but all gathered together, they're really quite impressive in their proportions. And I think they do make a match for Stonehenge. So they're quite low-lying, effectively, because I think we've got um, some of those in the UK as well. I think when we went on our pilgrimage walk in one of our early episodes on the English Heritage Podcast, we came across a circle of stones in Dorset, not far from Abbotsbury, and they looked sort of a bit like what you're describing now, those fireplace size, almost like, they almost look like sheep resting in the field. So is it that sort of thing that we're, we're sort of encountering in Japan? Absolutely spot on. That would be about right. Okay, so how were these things made? Do do we know? Well, they were made by people in what's called the Jomon period, Japanese prehistory. 
who they weren't farmers. Uh, there was no agriculture as such at this stage in Japan, but they were foragers. They were living on the wild food resources, which they were exploiting pretty intensively for a lot of the time. And um, at certain times of year, they seem to have got together and they gathered stones from the nearby river valleys or from the nearby coastline, and they brought them to particular places that were obviously important to them, and they constructed their stone circles using those stones. Am I right in saying that we're going to focus on a stone circle called Isodotai today? That's right, yes. And whereabouts is that in Japan? Isodotai is in a city called Kita-Akita City, uh, which is in the northern part of Akita Prefecture, which, as I said earlier, is right up in the northern end of the main Japanese island of Honshu. And it's quite a long way inland. It's probably about 75 kilometres from the coast of the Sea of Japan. And if people are listening right now and they want to uh, perhaps get another tab open on their computer, tablet or phone, they'll be able to follow along with what we're discussing. So if I look at some pictures of Stonehenge and I look at some pictures of Isodotai stone circles, we can see some differences in the landscape. So, for example, Stonehenge is on a plain, Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire. Isodotai is surrounded by woodland. So I think that's an interesting thing. Melanie, was Stonehenge ever surrounded by trees in the way that Isodotai is? Not not in the way that Isidotai is and not in the way that many of these Japanese stone circle sites are. So we know that the landscape was mostly open grassland surrounding Stonehenge and it would have had some clusters of shrubs or trees, much as it does now. There certainly would have been wooded areas in the much sort of wider expanse. But uh, some of these stone circles we've learned about in Japan were very closely surrounded by quite dense woods. And that's just not a feature that is typically present here in the Stonehenge landscape. What's the reason for that? Is it perhaps that there's a lot of chalk underneath the grass on, on Salisbury Plain? Is that part of it? Yes. Well, it, it is a, a wide open chalk grassland. And so we know that there's it's never really been a heavily wooded area. And I gather that both sites also have rivers nearby. So that is a similarity. How are these significant to the prehistoric people who used the sites? Hmm. Well, it is a similarity, but then again, there are a few differences there as well. So, I mean, typically at Stonehenge, we speak about the River Avon an awful lot. And we know that it quite possibly would have been a route for travel or transport that the people at the time of Stonehenge may have used. Equally, it may have been used for other natural resources. But we know that the Jomon people, as Simon had said, were hunting and gathering, but equally they were fishing fish seem to have formed a really important part of their diet and they would have obviously caught them from the sea but also from the rivers nearby to their settlements. We don't have this same evidence at Stonehenge for, for the high sort of use of fish in a diet. So that's a difference, although obviously they still had you know rivers near their communities. And the other really important aspect about the Japanese stone circles and rivers is that those stones in many cases literally came from the local rivers. So in some ways, that's a, that's a really high significance that they've got for those stone circles and the ways that they were transported and built. And again, it's not quite the same for Stonehenge. What are the other similarities between Stonehenge and Isidotai? One of the obvious similarities is that we've got circular settings of stones which have been created probably for, what are we going to say, non-residential purposes. There's very little evidence at Isedotai for houses or dwellings as such, 
although we do have evidence for some structures which we think were probably used temporarily, maybe for exposing the bodies of the deceased before they get interred in the ground. And we know that at Stonehenge, of course, there are, there's, there's no traces of people living at Stonehenge, although we've now got good evidence of people living um, not so far away at Durrington Walls, obviously. But we do have, you know, they're obviously important prehistoric, probably sort of ceremonial or ritual monuments, and that's, that's the key similarity. So one other thing that I think is really quite interesting is we now know we have a long sequence of activity at Stonehenge over well over a thousand years, and we seem to have a similar sort of thing happening at Isedortai. And in fact, at Isedortai, there are four separate stone circles that were built all very close to each other, rather than sort of all piled on top of each other, as may be the case at Stonehenge. And any particularly stark differences? As I say, I mean, that, that is, I suppose, one of the differences is that the phasing at Isedortai is very apparent because we've got four distinct stone circles all separated by just a few metres Whereas at Stonehenge, we've got that long sequence all right in the same place. So I think that's that's very interesting indeed. You've touched on the, the locational differences as well. And um, it seems, although we don't have too many um, trees around uh, Isedorta, what we do have is it looks across the river plain to another World Heritage Site, the Shirakami Mountain Range, which is very famous for its beech forests. And it seems that what's happening at Isedorta is very much aligned on the landscape in that way, perhaps in a slightly different way to what we got at Stonehenge. Another thing that's occurred to me in, in what you've been describing is perhaps the difference in age between the two sites. Now, are they fairly similar in age or, or different? What sort of age range in prehistory, what sort of period is Isidotai from? Isidotai is the late and the final part of the Jomon period, so it dates probably from around about sometime between 1500 BC through to about 1750 BC, something like that. So it is a little bit later than Stonehenge, but some of the other stone circles that we've got are a little bit earlier, so they're a little bit closer to Stonehenge in date. Comparing with your with where you are, Melanie, because you're obviously here in the UK, Stonehenge's age goes back further, doesn't it? That's right, it does. We've had a lot of uh, interesting conversations about this, seeing as the Jomon period refers to an absolutely enormous stretch of time, doesn't it, Simon? And so we've worked to make sure that some of the stone circles that we speak about in the exhibition and that we're looking at, yeah, come as close as they can to the same period at Stonehenge, which is, of course, a little bit earlier than than what Simon's just told us about. So for people who are coming to this new and don't know Stonehenge that well, it's about, what, four to 5,000 years old? Yes, is that right? yes, that's right. Yep. In a Neolithic period. And of course, it was adapted over time as well, and you can find out more during a visit. But um, is there any evidence then, Simon, that Isidotai or other Japanese stone circles were aligned with the summer and winter solstices like Stonehenge's? The best evidence we've got for alignments like this on summer and winter solstices is actually another stone circle about 50 kilometres or so away from Isidotai. And this is a site called Oyu. And um, at Oyu, we've actually got two stone circles rather than the four that we have at Isedortai. And they do seem to be aligned. They're aligned on each other. And on their long axis, they're aligned with the midwinter sunrise. And so they're aligned with the midsummer as well. And so there is some good evidence. And we've got this from a number of other sites as well. There does seem to be good evidence that they were aligned on the summer and winter solstices and the ways in which those solstices aligned with 
particularly important um, mountain peaks nearby as well. Oh, very interesting. Okay. Within the circles of the low-lying stones, how do we know which stone aligns? Is one sort of a different colour or does it point differently? How does it work? That's a great question. And actually at OYU, we've got a really nice answer to that, which is that in the centre of both of the stone circles at OYU, we have two features with a standing stone and a ring of radiating recumbent stones uh, stretching out from those. And they look a little bit like sundials, and they're called the sundial stones. And they're the stones that are particularly aligned. If you draw a line between them, you then get an alignment with the summer and winter solstices. I see. So like a sundial or perhaps a hand on a clock pointing out from the centre. Is that right? Absolutely. That's right, yes. So almost prescient of our modern day horology. <laughs> Have any human burials been found at Isidotai? One of the problems that we have in Japanese archaeology generally in terms of finding human burials or human skeletons in particular is that the soils are very acidic in Japan. That's largely down to the large number of volcanoes that we've got here. And that means that uh, the preservation of human skeletons, skeletal material, is usually not very good unless you're in very specific contexts like shell middens, which can counteract the impact of the acid soils. So what we've got is a few fragments of bone from a number of pits underneath some of the stone settings. And we also find a number of things that look as if they're burial goods from those features as well. And so it's more from the evidence for burial pits. They're about the right size for an inhumation, and which we find under these stone settings. It's more that kind of evidence than skeletons themselves, as we have at Stonehenge. So you're saying that the soil being so acidic, did you say, is actually That's breaking right. down the bones? It does, yes, rather sadly, unless you're in very specific archaeological context, sometimes in some caves, um, or as I say, sometimes in these shell middens, these accumulations of shells that we find a lot in, in the Jomon period, and people would have been buried inside those, and then the, that would have had an, an anti-acidic effect, preserving uh, the skeletons in place. I see. So how deep down were these uh, burials at Isidotai? The pits themselves are not so deep. Maybe they're sort of 50, 80 centimetres deep, something like that. They would have been just about deep enough to place her. They would have been relatively shallow graves, I guess. By contrast, though, Melanie, Stonehenge does have some evidence of, well, cremations at least, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And we do have, compared to Japan, it sounds like a relatively good amount of evidence in remaining skeletal remains. So that's another difference and similarity, isn't it? We've got a joint theme of death and laying people to rest, whether that's cremated at Stonehenge or it's buried at Isidotai. And obviously the way that the evidence has survived is also different. But clearly the common theme there is, I presume, a sacred place where maybe important people are being laid. Absolutely. There seems to be a really strong theme, obviously, in using these as sacred spaces and as you say, to possibly be commemorating people that have died, to be performing ceremonies or gathering together. So they're communal as well. What are your thoughts on that, Simon? Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I think the other thing that I would point out is that they're places which are used over really long periods of time. So obviously these are prehistoric cultures. They haven't got any way of writing down uh, about their ancestors or anything like that. And they're using this process of building monuments and burying people in those particular places to really sort of stake a claim over a place 
over very long periods. I think I find that very interesting. And that commonality between what's happening in prehistoric Japan and prehistoric um, Britain is, is interesting as well, I think. Yes, it's the shared human culture, isn't it? Because, you know, it's one planet, but people are behaving pretty similarly and life and death are parts of nature and they'll be reflected, I suppose, whatever part of the world you're in, whether you're in Britain or Japan. Moving on from buried people to buried artefacts then, let's talk about some of the archaeological finds dating from this Stroman period in Japan that we'll be able to see in the exhibition at Stonehenge. How many objects are going to be on display, Melanie? Well, we've got more than 80 objects that are going to be on display, and the majority of those are coming from Japanese museums and collections. And I believe for most of them, if not all, it will be the first time any of them have ever traveled internationally and left Japan to come and be displayed in an exhibition. So that's quite exciting for us. And we'll be displaying artifacts that have been found at some of the Jomon Circle sites that we've been talking about today, and also a number of artifacts from Senamairama, which was a settlement site, so a little bit different, but uh, as a settlement site with communal dwellings and other buildings, it brings us a lot of objects that can tell us about everyday life. Yes. I suppose the other thing that you're going to have is you're going to have tourists from Japan who are turning up in you know, southwest Wiltshire, having travelled thousands of miles for their once-in-a-lifetime trip to Stonehenge, and they'll see things from their own country, which I think is quite interesting. <laughs> what is the most sort of eye-catching, surprising exhibit that they might see? Well, I think for many people, one of the most eye-catching objects will be the flame pot. It is probably one of the largest objects that's going to be on display, and it is certainly, certainly eye-catching. However, if you were a Japanese tourist, for example, it may not be the first time you've seen one because flame pots are tremendously iconic in Japanese culture and they will be well known. So what's it made out of, a flame pot? It's a clay pot, a clay-fired pot. Incredibly elaborate though. So we speak a lot about the use of clay pots by the Neolithic people at Stonehenge. And we even speak about the sort of increase in decoration and in sizing and sort of elaborate design that went into those pots through the late Neolithic and, and into the early Bronze Age period at Stonehenge. However, long before then, these flame pots appear to have been being made in Japan and they are absolutely mind-blowing. <laughs> I might let Simon describe some of them if he'd like. We're going to have one on display and uh, it's just incredible looking. So yes, uh, Simon, regarding these flame pots, can you describe the size and whether one can actually get one's lips around them? I presume not. <laughs> That's a really good question. So they vary in size, the flame pots, from about 20 to 30 centimetres tall to anything up to the biggest one that I've seen is about 80 centimetres tall, actually. They're really difficult. They would be really difficult to drink out of as a pot in that way. And that's because the name flame pot comes from a series of flame-shaped crenellations, which you can see on the rims of these pots. And that plus they have some very elaborate projecting parts as well which altogether make it pretty tricky, I think, to have got the contents out of the pot, especially if it had been hot, which it probably would have been. We know they were used for cooking because we find um, carbonized remains inside them sometimes. Right, so not decorative and symbolic in that way, actual practical utensils. 
they seem to have certainly been used. Maybe the, some, some of my Japanese colleagues will say, well, think about your Sunday best crocs you've got at home, Simon. Maybe it would be something like that. Perhaps they weren't using them every day, but perhaps they were using them on sort of special occasions inside the houses. But yes, they were definitely used for cooking. Okay, so that's one thing that visitors, Japanese and international and domestic, can look out for at the new exhibition at Stonehenge. What else is there? There's quite a lot of really small objects, actually, miniatures, and a few of them are really interesting to look at, and they're unlike anything we've got at Stonehenge. So two that spring to mind are this one tiny little carved stone bear. We believe it's a bear. I'm pretty sure it is. It's very little. It's a dark black sort of carved stone piece. It would fit in the palm of your hand. And it's just really sort of evocative. You know, we don't know exactly what it was. Most likely it would have been a small token or perhaps even a child's toy. But it's quite interesting. We learned all about how Again, in many of these woods, and even today now in the woods that surround some of these sites, I believe the Japanese black bear is still alive and well. So it's an animal that would have Jomon people would have been aware of and has taken form in, this, in the form of this little tiny token or toy. So that's going to be on display. One other object that I particularly like is a, a very small, again, carved stone. Well, it looks like a foot. It's a tiny little foot. And I believe that it was found Simon, I can't remember whether that one was found at a stone circle or at a settlement site. I think the foot is from Isedortai um, yes. Mill, and um, it's part of a of a little stone figurine, a stone mm. version of the the dogu that we're going to talk about in a little bit. I think. Yes, yeah, that's one of those. But there there is another little a carved plaque almost in the shape of a foot, and we learned all about how there were uh, there's been quite a few other small clay plaques with infants' feet imprinted in them found at other Japanese sites, and they were thought to be something to do with a burial or a commemoration of a child who had died, something symbolic in that way. So we've got this little tiny carved foot as well that's going to be on display, which is, again, sort of touching, but also mysterious. The uh, indentations, almost like this Hollywood Walk of Fame type thing. <laughs> Can we see those at the Stonehenge exhibition as well? We don't have any of those indented plaques, I'm afraid. It's, it's just this one little small carved object ah, right. that you'll well, see. That's fascinating, though. You know, <laughs> footprints in the past. It's, mm. We sometimes discover dinosaur footprints, don't we, in uh, dry lake beds or something like that, don't we? Mm. And wow, that's I think that's really interesting. As okay. you say, it's sort of an imprint that just reminds you of the actual people and the sort of humanity yes. connected to these sites. Very much so. There's also this Joman pot with corded decoration in the exhibition. What would this be used for, Simon? Well, the word jomon in Japanese actually means cord patterned or cord decorated. And so it's the sort of the go-to decorative technique that was used through long swathes of Japanese prehistory. It gives its name to the, the period when these pots were being made. And um, as with the flame pots, most of these vessels were cooking vessels they were probably used for cooking up all kinds of delicious wild food resources. And um, they were carefully decorated, lots of different ways of twisting your plant fibers into cords. And the archaeologists have worked very hard to identify all those different different methods. But they would probably be largely cooking pots. And then some of them used for serving food as well. We've been describing clay pots and stone items, but are there any precious items well, that we might view in our modern times as precious, such as jewellery? Yes, we do have a number of small pieces of jewellery that will be on display. 
And these take the form of mostly earrings or earplugs made from clay. We have one earring that's quite flat and it is made of um, a really lovely green stone called serpentine. But of course, it's been polished and it's, and it's quite shiny. So you can imagine that being quite appealing for someone to wear. And we've got some green stone pendants that obviously no longer have their cords, but they've got holes in them. So we can be fairly certain that they would have been worn as a pendant. And some other beads as well, different clay and stone beads, some that are quite simple and some that are more decorated and incised and sort of carved to be slightly more elaborate. So it's a nice opportunity for us to basically think about how Jomwon people might have been adorning themselves, what they might have been wearing and what, what they might have liked to put on. Have they got string between them for the exhibition so that we can see how big they would be and how they would sit on the neck and this sort of thing? I'm afraid not, no. In this instance, we don't have enough to sort of create a full a full necklace or a full display of how they might have been. So they will simply on, be on display as the sort of tiny, interesting, delicate finds that they are. You can also see fragments of uh, what Simon described as this dogu as well. Now, what is a dogu? That's a really great question as well. So a dogu is a, um, it's a ceramic figure, a ceramic figurine made out of fired clay, probably made in much the same way that the pots themselves were made. And uh, they're something which are very distinctive about Japanese Jomon culture. We don't find them on every site by any means. And it seems that they were made particularly in places where ceremonies or rituals are taking place. And usually they were broken up once those rituals had been undertaken. So we usually only find fragments of these dogu on sites at all. I see. And what do you think the reason for breaking them up would have been? There's lots of really interesting interpretations about this. But one possibility, which I quite like, is that maybe people were getting together at places like these stone circles, perhaps on a seasonal basis or perhaps once every few years or something. And they would go through these ceremonies and rituals using these kind of clay objects. Maybe they had them, maybe they were imbued with some special powers, who knows? We can exercise our imaginations on that as much as we like, really. Perhaps towards the end of those ritual gatherings, these objects would have been broken up. Perhaps one idea is that that would then have broken up the sacred power that they might have embodied. But perhaps more importantly than that, perhaps the individuals concerned would have taken a little piece of a dogu away with them after all of this had happened as a little memento of their taking part in those ceremonies. Or perhaps a good luck charm or something. There's also, bringing it back to the modern times, some cartoon characters which have been created for the exhibition. And I gather that these are well-rooted in Japanese culture, Melanie. Can you describe what these cartoon characters look like? Because mm, if you're yes. a Japanese tourist, you'll probably recognise the, the artistic style, won't you? I hope so. I, yeah, I believe so. I mean, we took inspiration from the Yuruchara, which are a sort of well-known part of, of modern Japanese culture. And they are, you know, small cartoon characters, essentially, that become mascots. And they're typically used to promote a place or a region or a particular special event. And the exhibition team was lucky enough to visit Japan as part of our research. And we saw characters like this, and we were really struck by them. We saw them at train stations and in town centres and um, representing museums. And so we really wanted to incorporate this into the design if we could. So we worked with our exhibition designers and we've come up with two characters, one to represent Stonehenge and prehistoric Britain and one to represent prehistoric Japan. And they are called Big Rock and Little Clay. 
Okay. So visitors, will, visitors will see them throughout the exhibition. Big Rock, as you might imagine, is essentially the form of one of the large trilithons from Stonehenge. He's sort of a large hulking form with quite a cheeky face. And, you know, he's very curious about the world. And he's always accompanied by a trusty sidekick who is a crow. And for that, the designers also took inspiration from the birds that you'll see in the skies above Stonehenge on Salisbury Plain these days. Little Clay is, of course, made from clay and is directly inspired by one of the dogu that Simon was just speaking about. So her shape is taken from that. And she comes with a team of sidekicks as well, little pebbles, five little mischievous pebbles that seem to always be around. And I believe, again, those have been partly inspired by the the river rocks we were talking about that form so many of these stone circles. And just the idea that sort of clusters of stones are what create these monuments in Japan. So cute and friendly characters to welcome international tourists or Japanese tourists or even domestic tourists to the uh, new exhibition at Stonehenge. Well, we hope they'll welcome everyone and they'll be featured throughout the display for children, families, everyone to hopefully enjoy and, and see as they sort of what they get up to. Can you describe then how visitors will experience these characters and also the exhibit? They'll walk in through the sliding doors at the Stonehenge Visitor Centre and then where will they yes. see them? Well, for anyone who, who hasn't yet been to the special exhibition space at the Visitor Centre, that's exactly right. You go through the main entrance, through the sliding doors. We have our very large immersive 360 degree experience where you can feel as though you're standing in the stones. And as you proceed through that, just off to the right hand side is our special exhibition space. So you enter it from the main exhibition area, but it is a discrete separate room. Our characters will first greet you on some very large banners outside of that space. And hopefully they'll be beckoning you in to come and see what they've discovered about each other and about their each other's stone circles. And then within the exhibition, of course, we've got very, very beautiful exhibition display cases where all of the objects will be featured. And we've worked with our designers to create a really beautiful graphic display that has in part been inspired by many of the environments that we experienced at these Japanese stone circles. So the natural environments and the mountainous forested areas. And also they've taken a lot of inspiration from sort of modern Japanese design that has really appealed. So yeah, we hope that visitors will come on in and sort of immerse themselves in the space and see some things that they really weren't expecting to see when they first decided to come to see Stonehenge. Yes, and of course, on top of that, If they hadn't discovered the English Heritage Podcast yet, hello, thank you for downloading this episode. And they can experience the Stonehenge Japanese connection through listening to, you know, the multimedia offering that we've got through the podcast as well. So I think that's another thing that we can add on to that. Are there any sort of visual, other visual elements or is it mainly a sort of display case type um, experience? Uh, No, I mean, we've got some really beautiful graphics. You know, upon entry, there is a really beautiful wall where we're going to have some large maps because, of course, one of the first things we hope visitors can do is kind of get their heads around the geography and, and the context of what we're talking about. And, of course, having sort of Great Britain and Japan juxtaposed beside each other on a map is a really useful way to understand the places we're talking about and the locations of these stone circles. And we've worked with a Japanese artist who's produced some really beautiful Japanese calligraphy for us that's also going to be featured throughout the graphic display, again, to bring the, some flavor of the, of the place into the room. And we've also worked with um, a watercolor artist in Japan 
who has produced some reconstruction illustrations of some of the historic sites that we are talking about, and those will be featured in, in the display as well. Simon, you're currently in Japan, obviously. Are you going to be able to get to see this display when you're back in England? Oh, absolutely. I'm planning on being back in good time for the objects to be arriving from Japan. And I'm looking forward to being around where they're all being installed and I'll be there for the opening as well. So how long will the exhibition be on for? The exhibition, it's going to run for just under one year. So it will go until the end of next summer, 2023. And of course, it's free to all ticket holders who come to Stonehenge. This must be the first display of its kind at Stonehenge, isn't it? This this link between prehistoric Japan and prehistoric Britain. Absolutely, it is. It's a it's a really exciting story for us to be able to bring to the visitors. You know, we've hosted many exhibitions in the visitor centre since the time that it was opened. We've displayed many, many artefacts, but we have never had objects from Japan, nor have we ever had objects from anywhere else in the world. So obviously, bringing objects from very far away in airplanes over to Stonehenge has been a really unique experience and it's quite exciting for us. Maybe this is a question for Simon. How did this exhibition come about? Because in order to put it on, you need to have this shared human prehistoric culture to be able to tell the story. So I suppose it's that really which was the springboard for this whole thing. It really was. Over the years, I've been very fortunate. I've been able to bring a lot of Japanese colleagues to see Stonehenge, and they've always they've always loved it. They've always and they, we've always we've had many discussions about the commonalities and differences between Stonehenge and the Japanese stone circles. And it all really came to a head back in it was I think it was 2016 actually. It's a while ago now. There was a large there was the World Archaeological Congress in Japan in Kyoto, the city where I am now. We were having a number of discussions with some. There were some colleagues from English Heritage there. And I think over dinner, we just thought, why have we never been able to get any of this Japanese material to the UK in this way and get it at Stonehenge? Wouldn't it be great to be able to do that? And our original idea, of course, was to actually have it of the, to be at the same time as the Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics. But the COVID-19 pandemic interceded, and here we are a couple of years after that. But that's where the original inspiration came from. Have the objects in the exhibition helped to further our understanding of Stonehenge and also prehistoric Japan? Absolutely. I think, you know, learning and understanding what was happening in other parts of the world in this prehistoric world is really important for us in order to then understand the significance of Stonehenge in that much wider global context. And it's it's not always a context that we're able to know as much about. So I think it's been really compelling to be able to learn about what Jomon people were doing around the same time as Stonehenge, but, you know, halfway across the world. There's so many, so many shared experiences. Yeah, it forms a little sort of piece of thread in the intricate tapestry of the story of human history, I suppose, doesn't it? Um, this common connection. It really, you know, really does. Thousands of miles apart from each other, these two island nations. I think that's a really fascinating thing as well. What do you think, Simon? Yeah, absolutely. And the one aspect of the exhibition that we haven't touched on, and maybe this is a nice thing to, to sort of wrap up with, is that there's actually some really interesting connections in terms of the history of the study of Stonehenge and Japanese archaeology as well. And back at the beginning of the 20th century, a man called William Gowlands, who had spent a long time living in Japan doing archaeology here, did some excavations at Stonehenge. And his report is published in, I think, 1902. And it's actually illustrated with woodblock prints showing the importance of sun worship in Japan. 
So right at the very beginnings of uh, scientific investigations of Stonehenge, there was a Japanese connection then. And this exhibition helps us to further that understanding of those connections, I think. And as you say, that sort of that shared common universal humanity and all the diversity of that uh, that embodies. And lastly, there's this sort of cultural exchange between the United Kingdom and Japan. So have you been learning Japanese, either of you, uh, during your trips to Japan for, as part of your research? Well, I think Simon's already very fluent in Japanese. Is he? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I picked up a few words, but I think... Um, there's been so much collaboration on this project and so much kind of cross-cultural interaction and education and sharing of knowledge, which is what's made it really wonderful. And as Simon said, the project's been delayed multiple times at this point due to the pandemic, but all of our colleagues, both the Japanese institutions and, and colleagues that we've met, as well as those in the UK, have remained committed throughout and remained excited and enthusiastic about the project, which has allowed us to carry on. And I think um, the whole project just began with this early trip where the exhibition team was able to visit some of these stone sites, see some of these objects that we were fortunate enough to be displaying, and to meet many Japanese curators and historians. And it's just turned into this really wonderful experience for all of us, I think. So come on then, Simon, let's have a bit of Japanese from you. I can indeed. But, but just before I do that, we've already been using some Japanese without even realizing. So yudukyava or dogu, jomon, they're all wonderful Japanese words. And I'm sure everybody who visits the exhibition will be able to go away saying the Japanese for stone circle, which is stone sakaru. It's very straightforward. But in terms of uh, thank you for listening, I think I'd just like to say konbawa and honorably arigatou gozaimashita. So say zehi, ano tenrankai wo tanoshimi shite kudasai. And can you translate that as well for us? I think that was basically just saying good evening and uh, I hope you all enjoy the exhibition. Lovely. Thank you very much both for your time and for sharing this really interesting cross-cultural, cross-continent connection between Stonehenge and Izadotai and all the other stone circles in Japan. It's been a really fascinating chat, I think, for anyone listening. And um, I recommend that they, if they can, try and visit the exhibition over the next 12 months. How do you say thank you in, Jap in Japanese? You say, arigato. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll hear about the ghost stories associated with North Yorkshire's monasteries and how you can experience them in person. And we're going to be having a series of site tours, creative writing workshops, youth engagement programme, and there are also going to be a series of readings of ghost stories by some of the classics in English literature. Thanks for listening. See you next time.